Take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We will begin reading in verse 28. Hear now the Word of the Lord. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you? that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord's day. What a special day this is every week where we can gather as the Lord's people, and set our eyes upon the Lord. And Father, as we do that in the pages of Scripture, in this passage, through the preaching of the Word today, I pray that you would reveal your Son to us, that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ once again, and as we do, that we would be conformed to His image, that we would find our rest and our hope in Him once again this morning as we look to this passage. And Father, if there are those here who do not know you and have not trusted in Christ, I pray, Father, that they would see their need of him today, that they would see this Jesus that is strong and kind, and that they would run to him. Lord, would you do what only you can do through the power of your spirit? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. It's hard to believe that it's 2024 and 2023 is behind us. We're already in the throes of a whole new year. Here we are. As we stand at the beginning of this year of 2024, I want, I want, to, I want to start by challenging us with, with something that we need to give thought to. I want to bring up a, a cultural phenomenon that we're all keenly aware of, but still often fall prey to very frequently. And this year, it's going to be worse. Now, I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but let me tell you what we all know is going to happen this year. There is going to be loads of drama and conflict and surprises thrust upon us all. We have no idea what's going to happen in this election. We have no idea what's going to happen with our economy. We have no idea what's going to happen globally or geopolitically with all of these wars. And we have no idea what will happen in our own personal lives. But I know this, it's not going to be an uneventful year. And when the skies are red in the morning, you know a storm is coming. And the skies are very red here at the dawn of 2024. So what are we to do with all of that, knowing that at the outset? Well, let me tell you what the news outlets and the media networks and the social media sites want you to do. They want you to pay attention as closely as possible. They want you to be dominated by everything that takes place this year, by all of these realities. We all know this. We, we live in an economy that is largely built on attention. Entire, entire industries have been built, and billions of dollars are spent every single year on keeping your attention. And it's hard to avoid we're honest. Now, I am not telling you at all that you ought to put your head in the sand and be ignorant of everything that is going on, and that's the holy way to live. That is, that is not at all what I'm saying. Do not hear me say that. But like the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, we are not to be dominated or controlled by anything, whether it be food or drink or social media, or news. And if we want our walk with Christ to flourish this year, we have got to be mindful of that. In Luke chapter 10, we read of Jesus' first encounter with these sisters, Mary and Martha. They had invited Jesus into their home, and likely many others were with him. Probably the disciples were there too. And it says that Martha was distracted with much serving. There's a lot of people in her home. Imagine she was anxious about all of that. But her sister, Mary, was sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning of him. And Martha launches a complaint about her sister to Jesus. And listen to this familiar passage again, how the Lord responds. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled 
about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. There is a lesson in that for all of us. In a year like this coming year, it is going to be very easy to be anxious and troubled about many things and forget that there is one thing necessary, which is Christ. Knowing and learning from Christ. Being with Christ. Resting in Christ. He is the one thing that is necessary. And as we will see very much today, even in the face of death and loss, there is much to learn about how true that really is. There is much to learn about who He is. And there is much comfort to be found in His character. Both of these sisters are learning this lesson together in profound ways in this passage. And I pray that we all will, along with them, as we work through this together. This passage is full of of complexities. John intentionally juxtaposes Jesus' real, raw emotion with a display of His raw and unsurpassed power. And in that, we begin to see the depth of His character that is at work on behalf of His people. As we finally reach the climax of this story that we've been working through today, we're going to see two different responses from Christ to the death of His friend that paint a picture for us of the depth of His character and His love for His people. Basically, what we're going to see is both His compassion and His power at work. And what I hope you see is the multifaceted love of Christ for His people. And in that, that you would be spurred on to pursue Him and to rest in Him all the more this coming year. So let's start to work through this, starting with His compassion. Look with me at verse 28. It says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, obviously, we're, we're just picking back up right in the middle of the story where we left off, and we need to remember what has happened up to this point. Last time we were together, we focused on Jesus' initial arrival into Bethany, but, but prior to that, Jesus had been laboring a few days' journey across the Jordan. It was then that his, these sisters had sent him word that their brother Lazarus was ill. And Jesus then did what no one would have expected in a situation like that. He delayed two days in order to let Lazarus die before he came to Bethany. When he finally does arrive... Lazarus has now been dead for four days in in the tomb. Mary and Martha are in the middle of the Jewish grieving period that we talked about, known as Shiva, a seven-day grieving period in which the bereaved family remains at home for that time while friends and loved ones come to 
console them and comfort them and bring them food and grieve with them. But when Martha heard that Jesus had arrived, she broke this custom, she broke Shiva, and left her home to go to Jesus. And Jesus had this initial encounter with Martha alone that we looked at last time, in which he, he pressed her faith to go beyond where it had been. So Martha and Mary both loved Christ, and Jesus loved them. And John makes that explicitly clear back in verse 5. We saw this. And it's for this reason, his, his love for them, that he has done everything the way he has done it. And with Martha, he consoles her, not by saying things like what we would normally say in a situation like this. I'm so sorry for your loss. Lazarus was a good man. No, nothing, nothing like that. Instead, he, he consoles her by pointing her to himself, by revealing more of who he is to this dear woman. In fact, in that encounter, Martha was the direct recipient of one of Jesus' greatest statements about who he is. Look, look what he said to her at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, not only did he make that remarkable declaration, but he also pushed her to deal with it. Do you believe this? He didn't wait until he was about to demonstrate these words when he calls Lazarus out of the grave. No, he pushed her to wrestle with it then, before that. Because the truth is, whether Lazarus is raised from the dead or not, and beyond Martha's situation, in every trial, in every tragedy that we all face in life, the only true comfort that we can have is found in who Jesus is. It's found in his person. He is the one who will in time make all things right. And outside of him, there is no true comfort. Man can and does contrive all kinds of things to comfort themselves when, when things go terribly wrong in this life. But outside of Christ, there is no lasting or real comfort to be had. You just you can't even find it. And for this reason, Jesus presses Martha to look to him, to believe upon him in her grief, do you believe this, Martha? And in response, we saw Martha make this beautiful confession of verse 27 when she said to him, Yes, Lord, I, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She did believe. She still has much to learn, as, as we all do, but she did believe. Which brings us up to where we are picking up today. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. The scene now switches from Martha to Mary. 
And I think Martha gave Mary this news about Jesus' arrival in private, probably because she was trying to supply her sister with the same opportunity to have this private conversation with the Lord before everyone realizes that he's in town. And just like Martha, when Mary hears that Christ has come, she immediately breaks this Jewish custom and she runs to Christ. But she would not get the same opportunity that Martha received. Look at verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. The private meeting between Mary and Jesus did not happen. The Jews who were grieving with her followed her, not knowing that she was actually running to Christ. And when Mary gets to Christ, notice that she says the exact same thing that Martha did in verse 21. But she says it in a very different fashion. Look at verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, Mary is weeping at this point. We know that from the very next verse. She's not as, as collected or as calm as her sister was when she met Christ. But like Martha, Mary makes the same statement that is clearly a mix of love and faith and trust, but also disappointment. Where were you? If you'd been here, things would be different. But notice what Mary did immediately. Even before making this statement, she fell down at his feet. See, though Mary does not get the same private opportunity that Martha got, she nevertheless makes the same powerful statement about who he is. Mary said with her actions what Martha said with her words. You, you don't throw your feet, you're, you don't throw yourself at the feet of just anybody. At, at the very least, this is, this is honor to the highest degree. But if not, this is just absolute and overt act of worship on Mary's part. And I think it's the latter. It, it, it's clear that though Mary also had very much to learn, she also, like her sister, firmly still believed in Jesus. She trusted Christ. And even in her disappointment in His absence, in her own confusion about what has taken place, she nevertheless falls down at His feet in an act of worship as she calls Him Lord. And you can almost see in, in the combination of her words and her actions, even the same sentiment that Peter expressed back in chapter 6 when he, when he just said, Lord, where else can we go? You're all, you're all we have. Mary is saying the same thing. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus when things were going well for her, and she throws herself at the feet of Jesus when things are not well because there is nowhere else to go. 
And this should be a reminder to us all. Faith and trust in God and who He is, our faith is not to be contingent on our understanding of what He is doing. We may be very dismayed at the way things have turned out in life by God's providential decree. And yet we can, at the same time, fall on our knees in submission and faith before Him. You don't need to understand what He is doing in order to trust who He is. He is good. He is always good. No matter what befalls us, He is good. And He cares more deeply than you can imagine He cares. And that is nowhere more clearly seen than in what happens next. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, in order to rightly picture this scene, we have to understand what's going on here culturally. Because in our culture, when we are grieving, we talk about the need to be strong, or the need to hold it together. I'm, I'm just trying to hold it together. And we often do not make a big show of our emotions, or at least we try not to. And when someone does, you might even hear someone else comment about how they lost it. Oh, she, she really lost it at the funeral. Meaning that they lost control. They did not keep composure. As if that's like an unusual or negative thing. Well, in Jewish culture, this is not at all how they operated. Everyone lost it, so to speak. In, in their view, in order to properly grieve, there needed to be weeping and loud wailing, not just from the family, but from the comforters too. It was a part of this corporate grieving process. It was all loud in what would be considered dramatic and even times chaotic. And that's the scene that is here before us. That's the word that is used for weeping here is a loud wailing that is going on. Mary is not quietly weeping at Jesus' feet. She is wailing at His feet. And the Jews around them were wailing too. It was all sorrowful and loud and intense as an expression of this pain of loss and grief that was going on. For them, there's no, there's no dignity to be found in keeping it in. There was a, a rightness in expressing it and letting it out. And that's what they are all doing. And when Jesus looks at, at Mary, and, he, and when He looks around at all of these weeping Jews, these wailing Jews, it provokes Him. Emotionally. But likely in a different way than what you're expecting. I want you to notice how careful John is to describe what's going on in the very heart of Christ. It's because of verses like this that I have to believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, for here we are brought in on something that John would have no knowledge of 
apart from the insights given to him by the Holy Spirit of God who inspired every word. Now, through John's words, God is giving us insight into the inter- internal life of the Savior, into the heart of Christ. But unfortunately, there, there's, a, there's a bit of a translational issue here that we have to address. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the weeping of the Jews, he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. The question is about this word that is translated deeply moved. When examining this word in its usage, almost every single interpreter universally believes that the English translations have missed the boat on this one. Because the word has a very different connotation in every other context that it's used. And it actually means to be indignant or even outraged. Many of your translations probably have a footnote to that effect. Interestingly enough, all of the German translations, there's many of them, all of them got it right. They all translate this as some kind of deep-seated anger. And the only English translation that followed this line was the Holman Christian. It says, when he saw it, he was angry in his spirit. And that's right. Now, the translations that say deeply moved or something to that effect or groaned within him are probably just trying to figure out how John is using this very unique word in this context of grief. I get that, but in so doing, they have lost the depth of Jesus' response here because he is not just emotionally sad and empathetic here. He's actually indignant. And not just that, John uses a second descriptor. He also says that Jesus was greatly troubled. This word means to be stirred up or disturbed, to be troubled. And John says, greatly so. But if all of that is the case, the question then is, why? How do we make sense of this? Why would he be indignant and troubled? And this is where interpreters do struggle to find agreement. They all agree that he was angry, but at what is the question? Now, some say that he's angry at the show of grief itself, that the the people were, were grieving beyond what they should have, or they're grieving and continued unbelief in who he is. I suppose that's possible, but I don't think that helps us understand the fact that Jesus, too, will weep with them here in just a second. So I don't think that's it. Now, I think the more plausible explanation here, which most conclude, is that this entire scene of grief and wailing and loss and pain provokes him to anger at his great enemy, which is death and the sin that brought death into this world. See, the truth is, in our culture, we, we easily lose sight of how evil death really is because we've domesticated death as much as we possibly can when someone is dying in our culture we say things like well we want them to be able to die with dignity but we forget that there there is nothing dignified about death at all 
When someone is dying, their body is failing them. Their mind is failing them. They cannot do what they once could. They are dependent upon others for even the simplest or the most private of tasks. They are weak and tired. They're dying. Dignity is not the word for this. In our culture, we who survive often separate ourselves from it as much as possible. When someone dies, we have other people come in and take care of the body very quickly. Open casket funerals are becoming more and more rare. And many people do not even want to use the term funeral anymore. It's too depressing. Rather, we'll just have a celebration of life or a memorial service. Which is all fine and well. I'm not criticizing. I understand that. But we try hard not to focus on the fact that they're really gone. And rather, we just want to remember what they were like in their best moments in life. But that's not reality. Death has, has taken them. They're gone. You cannot talk to them. You cannot sit with them. You cannot hold them. You will never hear their voice. There is a separation. A tearing away. Never to be restored again in this life. And even now, the uncomfortability of pressing these realities upon us makes some of you say, we've got it, brother. Move on. But we have to feel this because not one of us will avoid it. And if you want to understand how the Lord feels about death and the sin that introduced it into this world, you need to stare it in the face and see it for what it truly is. It's evil. It's evil. It's not beautiful. It's not dignified. Ever. And it's not part of life. You've heard me say this before, and I heard it again in the hospital this week. Death is just a natural part of life. No, it is not. I understand why someone would say that. We console ourselves by trying to normalize it, but it is not. Death is a supernatural judgment from God foisted upon this world because of our sin. There's nothing natural or normal or life-giving about it. And Christ hates it. He hates our sin and He hates death. And you should too. In the face of all of this, of, of, of the destruction and chaos that this death has left behind, that Jesus is seeing in the, in the grief of those that is before him, he is angry. And he is troubled. And he is grieved. But look what he says. And look what he does. Verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. He wept. Verse 35 is the shortest verse in all of the Bible. 
and yet it is one of the most powerful. Because here we get a picture of how much he really cares. Now this is a different word than was used for Mary and for the Jews. This does not have with it the connotation of loud wailing. This is a quiet weeping, but it is a weeping nonetheless. As Jesus beholds this scene of grief and the destruction of death, and as he begins to head towards the tomb of Lazarus, he weeps. Tears are streaming down his face. But again, we need to ask the question, why? Why is he crying? For Lazarus? It's not for Lazarus. Jesus knows what he is about to do. He is going to see Lazarus in just a few minutes. He's not crying specifically for Lazarus. Rather, I, I, I believe that he's crying for all of us. He is weeping for the pain that sin and death have wreaked upon this world. He is moved by it. It affects him deeply. And honestly, we just need to stop here and marvel for a minute. Because this is God. This is God in the flesh. This is the one who has decreed everything that has ever come to pass. This is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the sovereign one. And yet he weeps over what happens in this world. Do not think that because God is sovereign over all and is working out his redemptive plan that he does not care about what actually takes place in this world. He does. He cares deeply. And yes, some high-minded theologians are going to be quick to say, well, this is just the reaction of his humanity. Fine, but he chose as God to take on this frail humanity with us, to feel what we feel, to experience what we experience, to suffer as we suffer, to weep as we weep. And the tears that flow down my Savior's face tell me what a compassionate God we serve. He knows our pains. He knows our sorrows. He knows death and its destruction on humanity, not from afar by mere observation, but up close by personal experience. Praise God for these two words that tell us so much about who He is. Jesus wept. We do not have a God like the pagans who is uncaring and unrelatable and, and distant and unmovable. We have one who is full of compassion and cares for us by walking with us, by entering into our experience and walking through what we walk through. And he knows it even better than we do. He was the man of sorrows for this reason, acquainted with grief to the point of tears for us. As Spurgeon once rightly said, a Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. Take 
comfort here, dear Christian. Jesus weeps with those who weep. And he does so unashamedly. It was obvious. He did not try to hide it. They all saw it. And as they are heading to the tomb, they try to make sense of it too. Look at verse 36. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? As is so often the case in the Gospel of John, there's a split reaction from the Jews. Some attribute these tears to love for Lazarus, which is, which is partially right, but there's a lot more going on than that. And then others use it as an opportunity to call him into question again, to cast shade on his ministry, and to imply some ineptitude on the part of Christ. Which is really amazing when you think about it. This is an obvious reference to what happened back in chapter 9 when Jesus opened the, 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 blind eyes man, the blind man's eyes. They knew that he opened the blind man's eyes. They knew it. Some of them may have even saw it, but it was not enough. They still look for reasons to call him into question. Which makes you wonder who's truly blind. But all of them are in for the shock of a lifetime, because Jesus' compassion towards sinners does not end in tears. Praise God for the tears, but praise God that there's more than tears, because we need more than that. We need His power, too. As we've looked at His compassion, now we're going to look at his, His power. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Notice John uses the same word again. This is not deeply moved. This is indignant, angry. Jesus, indignant again, outraged again as he comes to this tomb. There are clearly a complexity of emotions that are running through him in all of this. But here now is the dominant one. Again, anger. And this, this disposition, this internal state of indignation is meant to be seen in what he does. It is meant to set the stage for what he is about to do as he approaches this place of death. He comes to this tomb angry at the effects of sin and death in this world. Now, as John mentions, this tomb was in fact a cave which was common burial place for Jews at this time. And they would, have, they would have a great stone to seal over it to protect the body from animals and the like. And when they arrived at the tomb after four days, Jesus makes a demand that they were not expecting. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Now remember, he's, he's angry. This, this request wasn't made in soft tones. This was, a, this was an authoritative command. And yet Martha, the sister, who would have to okay this, objects. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. It's clear that no one knew 
why they were there. Not even the sisters who loved Christ entrusted Christ. Likely they all thought, especially as they saw Jesus weeping on the way, that they had just come to grieve together, to lament together, and cry together over the loss of their friend and brother. But as soon as they get there, Jesus surprisingly demands that they open it up. And Martha immediately objects. Because his intentions have have not even crossed her mind. Her brother's been rotting for four days. The fact is, she does not want to see him nor smell him in that condition. She doesn't want to remember her brother as a rotting corpse. But as understandable as that is, her objection is rooted in unbelief. She was not trusting Christ in this moment. And Christ addresses her for it. Look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now make no mistake about it. This this is a sharp rebuke. These are not words that anyone want to hear in any context. Not from your parents or your teacher or your boss or anyone. Did I not tell you? Any sentence that starts off that way is usually not a commendation. But Jesus' words here are key for understanding this whole thing. Now, if you remember the story well, you might be asking, well, when did Jesus tell this to Martha? Because it's not exactly obvious. And some say this is a summation of their conversation said from a different angle. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, do you believe this? But others say this could be a callback to verse 4, when they first sent word to Jesus, and Jesus replied to the message by saying, This illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Likely, Jesus knew that his words would have been reported back to the sisters. And I think it could be either of those or even a combination of the two. But what matters more than figuring out when he said this to Martha is, is what he is saying. Because he is here giving the purpose for all of this. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Notice, he does not say, if you believe, you will see your brother. It's not about that. The resurrection of Lazarus is not about Lazarus. Nor is it just about rectifying this situation and their temporary grief. It's about so much more than that. And primarily, it is about seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is is going to raise Lazarus here whether or not the people around him believe. Whether or not Martha believes. So he he is not even saying, if you believe, you will see me do this wonderful miracle. The miracle is coming. It's not contingent on their belief. And in fact, there are many there who will see this and still don't believe, as we'll see in verse 46. But what Jesus is saying here, what is contingent, is what you will see in the miracle. If you believe, you will see the glory of God because you will rightly see who I am and what I am doing. 
you will rightly understand that I am God in the flesh and I have power over death. And that is still true today. Some will read this story from a posture of belief and they will see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And others will read the very same story from a posture of unbelief and remain unmoved because they are blinded by their own belief. But Martha heeds her Lord's rebuke, not another word from her, as she now just watches what unfolds. Look at verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus starts with a simple prayer to thank his Father. This is actually the first time we get led into the prayer life of Christ in the Gospel of John. Obviously, it will not be the last, but he He clearly has already been praying for Lazarus in this situation because he's thanking God for having already heard him. See, Jesus was constantly in prayer, always in prayer, communing with his Father. But here he he prays out loud to thank his Father so that everyone who is observing this could hear him, so that they would understand who he is, the Son of God sent from heaven, who is working the works of his Father, which they are about to witness. By this prayer, here he shows his continued dependence and reliance upon and co-working with his Father. He's showing that what is about to take place is not a, a rogue display of his power apart from the Father, but a cooperative work of the triune God. And he wants everyone to understand that. But here, now, we finally get to the climax. Look at verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. You know, with all the, the movies that we see and the stories that we consume in our culture that have supernatural activity, we can easily be desensitized to the weight of this. But this is not a fantasy novel or any work of fiction. This is historical record attested to by many eyewitnesses, one of which is the one who wrote these very words. And by the mere calling of his voice, Martha and Mary stood and watched their brother rise up out of the tomb. In a moment's time, after having been dead for four days, all the decay reversed. His hearts began to beat. The electrical waves in his brain began to fire. His blood began to flow again. The man got up and came out of his tomb. Can you imagine seeing this? Watching your your dead loved one come back to life? Truly, it's hard to fathom. 
And all of this took place by the mere power of his word. Notice John was very specific to say how this happened. Jesus did this in a way that nobody could mistake and everyone could hear. It says he cried out with a loud voice. In essence, he shouted his authoritative command, Lazarus, come out! This word that John uses for crying out, he doesn't use very often. And interestingly enough, the only other time he uses it is for the crowd who welcomes him on his triumphal entry in the same crowd who then turns around and cries out, crucify him. I think that contrast is made on purpose. The call of sinful humanity is a crying out and a command for his death, for death, the death of the Son of God. Theirs is the voice of death, but the call of Christ is a crying out and a command for life. Life for dead and guilty sinners. And it is authoritative and effectual in its nature, displaying his his raw power even over death in this moment. Augustine rightly quipped that if Jesus had not used Lazarus' name in this command, then every grave in the region would have just spit out its dead. Such is the power of Christ. His is the voice of life. But brothers and sisters, this miracle was not an end unto itself. It was a sign pointing to who Jesus is and what he is doing for all who believe. As he told Martha, he is the resurrection and the life. And he came to defeat his mortal enemies of sin and death on behalf of those who would believe. This is why he was so provoked. This is why he was so angry. Because he had once again encountered the ravaging effects of his enemy. In fact, nobody described this better than B.B. Warfield. Listen to what he said on this passage. He said this, quote, What John tells us is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. He did respond to the spectacle of human sorrow, abandoning itself to its unrestrained expression with quiet, sympathetic tears. Jesus wept, but the emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was rage. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy." Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage as he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words again, as a champion who prepares for conflict. What John does for us in this particular scenario is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites on our behalf. He has not only saved us from all the evils which oppress us, he has felt for us and with us in our oppression and under the impulse of these feelings, he has wrought out our redemption. Praise God. That's what's on display in this miracle. It's not an end unto itself. 
It is a sign pointing to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And he came to defeat death. And he did that by tasting death for us. By paying the penalty of sin and removing its condemnation from all who believe. And then when he overcame the grave himself, he did so on behalf of his people. This is why he is called, as we sang about this morning, the firstborn from the dead. And now for you who believe, he, he has done for, for you what he did for Lazarus physically. He has already done for you spiritually. Is he has called you to awaken from death, from being dead in your sins and trespasses, to being alive to Christ. And one day, very soon, it will be upon us before we even know it. We will see the ultimate fulfillment of all of this when Jesus will return, when he will split the sky and descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. And as Jesus said in chapter 5, it is at that hour, the hour that is coming, that those who are in the grave everywhere will hear his voice and come out. Some to the resurrection of life, and others to the resurrection of judgment. What you have witnessed here in the pages of Scripture, you will experience firsthand. Very soon. But it will be infinitely greater. Because at that point, unlike Lazarus, we will be raised never to die again. The perishable will have put on the imperishable. And it is at that point that the saying will come to pass, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because what the Scripture calls the last enemy will have been defeated forever. It will be the death of death. And it is coming. Brothers and sisters, we are to marvel at this Savior who is unlimited in power and might and yet at the same time, weeps with us and for us. As we enter into the unknown of this year, we do so with that one on our side. The one who sympathizes with our weakness and fights on our behalf. What more could you ask for? So with that in mind, just as we heard last week, do not be anxious about tomorrow about everything that will take place this year. In the midst of the chaos, there is one thing that is necessary. Knowing and learning from our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sitting at His feet and sometimes falling at His feet. The depths and complexities of His person are, are infinite and beyond imagination. Do not think that you have Him all figured out. You don't. Follow Him. Pursue Him. Spend time with Him. Open your Bible and be with Him. And if you have never known Him, or if you're just here play-acting like you do, the time to get off the sidelines is now. Christ calls all men everywhere to repent and believe, to put your trust in Him and Him alone. And you can do that this day. 
His offer of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life is open to you now. Don't leave here without knowing that that is yours. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for his tears. Thank you that it is from his experience of our sorrow and grief that he will wipe away ours. Thank you for his power. Thank you for his work. Thank you that death does not have the last word for any one of us. God, help us to trust in that. Help us to rest in who he is. And help us not to be blown around by the events of this world, but to anchor ourselves in Christ. Lord, give us the grace we need to keep our eyes upon him. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.